Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Merry Christmas. It's good to be with you. It is so sweet to worship with all of you. I love having the whole family in on this service. Kids, thank you so much for leading us in song this morning. You did an amazing job. We're so grateful for you and for your teachers who got you prepared to do that, to lead us in worship this morning. We are going to be in the passage that was just read in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 14 this morning. And here's the, here's the big picture that I want you to grasp and hopefully leave with and continue in worship this, this afternoon. We have good news of great joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is good news that leads to great joy, and it begins with God pursuing sinners. It begins with God taking a step towards us. When there was no way for us to go towards God, there was no way for us to reach God, and so God reached down from heaven sent his only son, who was born to the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, and laid down his life on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. He initiated the reconciliation that we rejoice in. This morning, I'm going to be preaching part one of a two-part series entitled, Good News of Great Joy. And the message this morning is entitled, the child is born. And I'm very intentional in using the word the child is born. It's not like a child is born. That's not what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that the child is born. The child that was prophesied of old who would come and take away our sin upon himself and die for that sin on the cross. The child has been born. God made many promises of old that he would send a child who would live and die for us, and this child is born. We're looking at the story of his birth. One theologian once said that although his birth was like any other child, 
The child was unlike any other child that's ever been born. We'll get into the specifics of that as we carry on. But I just want to make it very clear up front that there was no other child who could save you from your sin. But Jesus Christ is that child, and Jesus Christ has come, and he has accomplished salvation. Before the child was born, his mother and father went on a journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And we're going to look at that journey in just a second. But before that journey, some things took place. Now I'm going to just unpack those quickly. Number one, the angel Gabriel appeared to the young virgin, Mary, and he told her the unthinkable, that Mary would bear in her womb the second person of the Trinity, that she would be the mother of the Son of God. Can you imagine? And another angel appeared in a dream to Joseph. We see this in Matthew's account. And he told Joseph that Mary's conception was not the fruit of immorality, but was the Holy Spirit at work. And that this child who was in Mary's womb would save her people from their sins. I mean, it's, it's a mind-blowing reality that Joseph is hearing that the son, the baby that's in my wife-to-be's womb is going to save me from my sins as well as her and the whole world. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to bring you to where we're at here in verse 1 of chapter 2. It is late in Mary's pregnancy, sometime in the third trimester. Things are very uncomfortable. Birth pains are beginning. Anticipation is welling to look into the face of the Son of God in the flesh, to hold him in her arms. And now this couple is forced to travel 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Third trimester. Let's look at this journey. Verse 1 through 3, look with me. In those days, a decree went from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. The first thing I want you to see here is that this is a real historical event, this journey to Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus is in charge. He's reigning. He, he reigned from 31 B.C. to A.D. 14. Quirinius is governor of Syria. These are real people, a real place, real time. Caesar Augustus was the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar. You've heard of Julius Caesar. Surely. Famous. Caesar Augustus was not his real name, but he was a real person. Caesar Augustus, it, what that means, Caesar is emperor, Augustus is revered. So this is his title. He is the revered emperor in Rome at this time. He was the successor of Julius Caesar, who was a revered emperor as well. Caesar Augustus, his real name, Gaius Octavius, 
He had a pretty good legacy as an emperor in Rome. He had a legacy of peace and prosperity. He did a lot of things towards the public works in the Roman Empire at that time. He was a major part of the network of roads that were developed where Christians, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, carried the gospel with them and and the gospel just radiated out from Jerusalem. This is a historical event. This is a real registration. It was the first registration under Quirinius. You might be wondering, what's a registration? What's the point of a registration? Taxes, unfortunately. So so to make a a very difficult family trip uh, even more troubling, now, now you're paying taxes to Uncle Sam or Uncle Caesar. Caesar had made this decree so that people would bring him gifts, so that they would come and pay him taxes And yet behind that human decree was the decree of God, and God's decree was that God was bringing a gift to the world. God was bringing the greatest gift of all time to the world, a gift that has no price tag, a gift that doesn't fit under a tree, the gift of his son, the gift of eternal life for all who put their faith in him. God was providentially using this godless emperor at this point in history for his ultimate purposes, to fulfill prophecy, to advance the gospel message, to bring good news of great joy. This journey was a fulfillment of prophecy. We see this in Micah 5, 2, but let me read verses 4 through 5 to you here in Luke first. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So again, what I don't want you to miss is this is a real historical event, but before this event, before this decree from this ruler, there was a decree in the past, so far past, it was in before the time began, that God determined that he would send his son into the world to forgive sinners through his perfect life and death and resurrection. Micah 5.2 says this, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Jesus, his earthly father was Joseph. Joseph was in the line of King David. The prophecies were pointing that the Messiah, the Christ, would come in the line of King David. But it gets even more specific than that. The Messiah is not just coming into the world and through the line of David. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. This journey is not just a historical event. This journey is not just the fulfillment of prophecy. This journey was difficult. It was not easy. I just want to remind you of this before we get to the child's birth. Current biblical scholars are estimating that this was about a four-day journey in total. 90 miles, four days, eight hours a day, and this young woman is, is traveling on the back of a donkey, uncomfortable to say the least going a whopping two and a half miles per hour. But this was the road to Bethlehem. This was the journey God chose 
to bring the greatest gift of all time to mankind. And they arrived, and the child is finally born. Look at verse 6. The child is born. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I want you to see this. The child was born on time. Look at verse 6. It says, the time came for her to give birth. See, God is never late. God is never early. God is always on time. And this child was born on God's time. Mary may have made it to 40 weeks. She may not have. But this child was born on God's time. We don't know how many days she was pregnant with the second person of the Trinity, but this child was born on time. The very day, the very hour, the very minute, the very second that God had preordained before time, this child was born, and here he is. And Galatians 4, 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, and it had come right here, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we, sinners, might receive adoption as sons. All of human history from the garden to this point was building up in anticipation. The fullness of time is here. It's arrived. The Son of God is born. Another thing I want you to keep in mind is not only was this child born on time, this child was born to the right person. This child was born to the virgin. And this is very significant. This is a very important doctrine for us as a church. Mary was a virgin. It says in verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. The teaching of the Catholic Church is that Mary remained a perpetual virgin for her whole life until her death which is a complete denial of Scripture. Uh, it's completely false. Matthew 1.24 says, When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Mary was indeed a virgin, and she conceived through the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. But she was not a perpetual virgin. She got married to Joseph, and after the child was born, she had other children. Again, the Catholic Church teaches that this was Mary's only child. Not only was she only a, a perpetual virgin continually, but this was her only child, that there was no other brothers or sisters of Jesus. And that's just not true. The truth is, if you read the Bible, Matthew 12, 46 through 47, Matthew 13, 55 through 56, John 2, verse 12, John 7, verse 3, 5, 10, Acts 1, 14 are descriptive that Jesus had other siblings. And there's actually some points in the New Testament where they're coming to him and they're going, man, you need to chill out a little bit. You're saying some wild things. And he didn't. He just kept doing exactly what the Father had told him to do. But Luke makes it very clear. Mary was a virgin when she conceived. This was a miracle we celebrate a miracle, 
But maybe you've heard about the virgin birth your whole life and, and growing up in church and you're going, I just don't understand why it's so important. Let me, let me tell you two reasons why it's so important. Number one, it was a fulfillment of scripture. And if God promised something and it doesn't come to fruition, if he doesn't fulfill it, God's a liar. And God is not a liar. Isaiah 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. So the virgin, what the virgin is conceiving in her womb is not just a man, it's not just the Messiah, it is a God-man, it is God with us. Secondly, the virgin birth is so vital to our faith because without it, we would still be dead in our sins. Jesus had to not inherit what we inherited from our earthly parents, our mother and our father, going all the way back to Adam. Jesus could not inherit a sin nature. You and I have a sin nature. It, it leads us towards sin. It inclines us to sin against and stray from the God who created us and has redeemed us in Christ. Jesus did not inherit that sin nature. And because he did not inherit that sin nature, he continued in a sinless life, perfectly obedient to the Father. And without that obedient life, we could not be saved. But with it, we can, by faith alone. Not in our works, but trusting in his. The child was born into humanity, and you need to see this, because not only is he Emmanuel, God with us, but he is God in the flesh. This is not just some form. This is not just a visible image of a human being. This is a fully God, fully man, baby laying in the manger. And this is important. It says that Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths. In ancient times, the, these swaddling cloths were just strips of cloth that you wrapped around a baby. The baby spent nine months or so in the womb, confined, warm, secure. They come out, and they're, they're a little terrified. They're now breathing air for the first time, and they, they need their mother to hold them close to her chest. They need to be comforted, and that's what they would do. They'd wrap them with these claws. We do the same thing. The difference is we got Velcro today. Okay, it's just we've got more technology for these swaddling cloths, but we do the same thing. Jesus was treated just like any other baby, though he was not like any other baby. But in his humanity, he needed exactly what you and I needed. He became like us to represent us. He understands us, and he came to save us. This child was not just born into humanity, fully God and fully man. This child was born in humility. Look at verse Look at the, the continued verse. It says, And she laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. A manger was a feeding trough. A manger was, you've seen a lot of pictures of mangers and they're these little wooden structures, but that's not likely what the manger looked like. More, more than likely it was a stone, a, a piece of stone that was hewn out and they'd put food and hay in the stone for the animals to eat out of. This is not the most clean place to be born. This is a manger. No crib. A manger. For the king, a manger. He was born in humility. 
There was no place for him in the inn, apparently. And this is not like the Holiday Inn, you know? Uh, listen, we, you need to keep in mind, when they made this trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem, they couldn't like get on Expedia.com and, and just book a hotel room before they made their trip. They had to get there and then they had to figure out where God was going to provide, providentially provide a place for Mary and her husband to rest and for her ultimately to give birth. And he chose a manger scene. He chose out in the cold. He chose a place around stinky, dirty, noisy animals. The Son of God can identify with us in every way. It says that there was no room in the inn. That might mean that there was some type of lodging place or publicly known space where individuals or caravans could come and, and find a place, maybe a campground type of site, but not even there was there room for the Son of God. He experienced rejection from the beginning to the end of his life, and he lived a humble existence. Even when he was doing his ministry as a grown man, he said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, and that was true from the very beginning. Fully God, fully man, complete humility. That's Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God immediately after the birth of his son, sent an angel to earth to share the birth announcement that the child was born. Look at verse 18. Verse 8. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, this is very interesting because these are the recipients of the gospel. Shepherds. Dirty, smelly shepherds. It, it's a great match for the setup, the context in which Jesus Christ is born in a manger scene. If the announcement of Jesus' birth had been a humanly planned PR event, it wouldn't have gone to shepherds, okay? Shepherds were like some of the most despised people of the time. I mean, if this was a humanly planned big event, the first Christmas they would have reached out to the high priest, members of the Sanhedrin, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. They would have gotten all the important people together. But God had other plans, and he reached out to a few shepherds in a field, unsuspected, unsuspecting shepherds. Shepherds were viewed as uneducated, unskilled, dishonest even, unreliable unsavory people, and God chose to bring the gospel to these shepherds, undeserving people, just like you and I. They weren't even allowed to testify in court. Shepherds, you know sheep, they're so needy. Shepherds had to be with them 24-7. That's seven days a week. That's all the time. They had to rotate who would sleep at night, like, uh, nights like these. 
So they couldn't fulfill all of the man-made Sabbath regulations that the Pharisees had put in place. They were outcasts. But God chose to reveal the birth announcement of his son to shepherds. Friends, look at verse 9. We see the messenger of this gospel. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. They're shocked. It's not like this has happened to them before. And it says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. So in some sense, there's the presence of God, not just the presence of an angel of God here. And they went from pitch black darkness to light. They went from being a bit tired to wired. They're in a field. They're under the night sky. The only lights are the stars. And an angel appears. It's terrifying. It says that they're frightened. They're filled with great fear. That's an understatement. Shepherds saw all kinds of predators. Wolves, bears, maybe mountain lions. And they didn't have automatic rifles to defend themselves with, just a shepherd's crook. And they might have been scared at many moments in their life, especially at night when these predators are beginning to prey on their sheep or even on them, but they've never been afraid like this. This goes from being the most terrifying night of their lives to the greatest, most joyful experience of their entire life. Worst night to best night. Look at the text. The Shekinah glory is all around them. There is nothing natural about this. This is God interceding. This is God intervening. This is God entering the world. His glory lights up the fields. They were filled with great fear. And what does the angel say to them? So beautiful. Look at verse 10 and 11. This is the message of the gospel. And until you first come under the fear of God, you'll never embrace the gospel of God. Verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you Good news of great joy that will be for all people, including shepherds, not just Jews, Gentiles too. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel told him not to fear because they were terrified. But then the angel told him why they need not fear. Because the angel was coming not to condemn them, but to save them through the message that he's heralding. This is not a message of condemnation. This is not a message of, of coming down in, in judgment. This is a message of there is a way to be saved and it's through the person who I am proclaiming. There is this day... In the city of David, a Savior who is born. He is Christ the Lord. He is the one you've been anticipating. This is good news. Friends, if, if, you, don't, if you don't lean into verse 11, you're in danger of misunderstanding who Jesus is 
and why Jesus came and what we're celebrating this morning. Jesus did not come into this world to be merely a good example for you. Jesus did not come into this world to give some good moral lessons for you to live a decent life. Jesus was not merely a good teacher. Jesus was not merely a prophet from God, though he was. Jesus did not come to be a social activist, as many falsely portray him. He's not the Gandhi of the first century. He is God incarnate. He is the Savior. Look at verse 11. This day, at this time, the fullness of time, in a particular city, the city of David, King David, there is a king who's born, and he is first and foremost a savior. Praise God. Why? Because we need saving. We need to be saved. You're either saved here today or you were unsaved and I'm proclaiming the message of salvation to you that was first proclaimed by these angels to these undeserving shepherds in this field at this time. It's good news. Many people today say, well, that's awfully nice of you to say that, and Jesus seems like a great person, but I don't know if I really need a Savior. Let me clear it up for you. You do. You need a Savior as much as I need a Savior. The reason why you need a Savior and I need a Savior is because you have sinned against the Holy God who appeared in glory in that field. Matthew 1.21 says that she, the virgin, would bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Romans 3.10 says, it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. There are no good people. Good people don't go to heaven. There are none, not one. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Luke 19.10 says, speaking of Jesus, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, meaning it's worthy of your trust, meaning what are you to do in response to the gospel? Trust it, to believe it. It's so good of good news, it almost feels unbelievable that God would come to save you, a sinner, and yet that is exactly what he's done. It is deserving of full acceptance, and here it is, Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. Paul goes on to say, of whom I'm the foremost, and I feel that standing right here today, the foremost, the worst. It is clear through the scriptures that we have sinned. It's clear through experience that we've sinned against God. We have gone astray in every way possible. And yet it is equally clear that God responded in kindness. He responded in a way that you'd never anticipate, much like how he operates. He goes to shepherds, not to the ruling class of the time, to reveal this birth announcement of his son. He's doing the unthinkable. He has sent his son to save you, a sinner. I think the problem why we don't appreciate Jesus and we don't embrace and, and rejoice and celebrate and revel in his savior identity and his salvation is because we just don't think we need saving. I mean, what is sin? Yeah, we've all messed up every now and then. 
Let me define sin for you through the scripture. 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin equals lawlessness. That's what it says. Sin is lawlessness. Well, then you got to ask, what's lawlessness? It is breaking God's law. It is going against God's commands. It is disobeying God's word and God's will. I'm going to get more specific with you because I want you to understand this. I don't want you to leave without grasping the reality that you've sinned in greater ways against God than you're aware. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Have you ever told a lie? Better question, how many lies have you told in your life? You probably don't have the number written down anywhere. I mean, just it keeps increasing over time, it seems. Have you ever committed adultery? Maybe you're going, whoo, not that one. I haven't done that. Well, Jesus clarifies, Sermon on the Mount, if you've looked at someone with lust in your heart, we're talking about a holy God who looks not just on the outward appearance of man, but on the heart, and he says you've committed adultery from the heart. Have you ever murdered someone? Again, you might go, whoo, not me. Okay, have you ever had hatred and anger and bitterness in your heart towards someone? Probably yes. Jesus would say you've committed murder from the heart. You're guilty before God. Have you ever coveted anything that belongs to your neighbor, their wife, their husband, their home, their car, their things, their clothing, their jewelry, their position, their their job? Have you ever coveted that which is your neighbor's? The scripture says thou shalt not covet, and yet we've all coveted. Have you ever stubbed your toe and taken the holy God's name in vain, saying OMG or JC in anger or disgust? He says you've taken it in vain. He says you've taken it in a way that is flippant and dishonoring to God. Have you ever dishonored or disrespected your parents at any point in time? Kids, listen to me. Have you ever dishonored your parents? You've broken the fifth commandment. And you're guilty before God. The reality is we all have. This is serious. It gets more serious because the wage of sin is death. What we've earned for our sins is death. Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once because of sin. And after that, what happens after that? That, That's a great question. What happens after death? Judgment. It says it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. You and I are going to have to stand before God on judgment day. One at a time and give an account for our sin. Unless we go to God and we confess our sin to him. We humble ourselves before this humble babe in the manger and say, I'm not good. I need you. You're the only one that lived a perfect life, Jesus. And I'm putting all my cards, I'm putting all my hope, I'm putting all my trust, not 99%, 100% in this child, in this manger, in his perfect life, in his substitutionary death, in his victorious resurrection from the dead, because I can't rise myself from the dead. I just can't do it, and if you can come to that point in your life and go, I can't do it, and you acknowledge that he has, and that it is finished, you will be saved. That's a promise from God. 
Romans 6, 23 says the wage of sin is death, but here's the good news. As you tremble in that truth, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means, number one, it's free. You can't earn it. You can't offer something to God to receive it. This is a gift. Secondly, it means that it's a free gift of God. God has given it. The gift is eternal life. It is to bypass death. It is to be in the presence of God forever. And that free gift, how do I receive it? It is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have to let go of everything that you think was earning you favor with God. You have to let go of every good work you've ever done that tempts you to trust, well, I'm not that bad. And you take hold of this babe in this manger and you say, without this child, I would perish and spend eternity in hell. It's God's prison without parole. But with this child and his blemishless life and his death to pay for my sin, I too will experience the resurrection that he trailblazed for me. Praise God. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. The Christ, the words Christos. It's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah. It's saying he is the anointed one. He is God's prophet. He is God's priest. He is God's king. What does that mean for us? It means that only Jesus, only in this babe, in this manger, he's the only one as the prophet who has the words of eternal life. There is no one else that we can go to, but we can go to him. As the high priest, he is the only one who can intercede between you, a sinner, and a holy God. And it says that after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and he is advocating for you and I as we continue to try to run the race of faith, but imperfectly we stumble, we fall, we sin. And there he is, and he's interceding. He's our defense attorney. He is the king in the line of David whose kingdom would be eternal. And we are to submit and obey and trust and offer allegiance to no one but this babe in the manger. He's the Lord. And in a human sense, the word Lord means it's a person of, of leadership and of authority and that we're to submit to the Lord in that sense, in the human sense. But here it's talking about Yahweh, that he is God. He is the God-man. And he has come to save sinners. Jesus says in John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, speaking of God, you will die in your sins. But if you believe that he is Lord and you put your faith in him, you will not die. You will experience eternal life. Listen to this, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, no one can do it for you. But if you confess in all humility with your own mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Praise God. 
the angel tells the shepherds not only who was born, but where he was born. Look at verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. If they went out looking for a baby in swaddling cloths, they might find a number of babies in a swaddling cloth, but they're only going to find one in a manger that night, and it's the Lord of glory. It's their Savior. It's their Savior. The angel told them this so that they would pursue Jesus, so that they would find Jesus that night, so that they would worship Jesus that night, so that they would proclaim Jesus that night and every day and every night for the rest of their humble existence as lowly shepherds. Look at the response to the gospel in verse 13 and 14. It says, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's a multitude of angels. Again, the glory of the Lord was enough to light up this field. But now you've got thousands upon thousands of angels that are joining this messenger angel and they're singing a chorus. And what are they singing? They're, they're singing glory to God in the highest because God has done this. Man has not done this. God has brought salvation. Friends, glory to God in the highest. This is where we get the, the, the hymn that we're about to sing here in a few moments. Angels we have heard on high. And, and it's refrain, Gloria in excelsis Deo, meaning glory to God in the highest. It doesn't get higher. He is the one and only and true God, and he deserves all our worship and praise. This is the first time this song was sung on earth, but it won't be the last. He says, peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. So you've got to ask the question, who's God pleased with? God is pleased to offer salvation to sinners. God is pleased to save the people who the world would look at and say, God would never save this man. God would never save this woman. This person's a wretch. This person's a rebel. This person's done awful things in their life, and God would never save them, and that is exactly who God delights in saving. Listen, there's a category of people in which God saves through Christ. It's sinners. And so, friends, unless, again, we come under the trembling fear of God's holiness and recognize that you and I are sinners. You aren't in that category. But if you can humble yourself before God and said, I've sinned against God in every way and more than I can even think, God takes pleasure in a broken and contrite heart coming to him saying, I need the salvation that you offer through this child. And I believe he's the only way to be saved. And God saves. And he, he started and he continues and he will be done when Christ comes again at the second advent. Who does God take pleasure in? Saving sinners. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. 
But if you can acknowledge that you're a sinner and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, God takes great pleasure in that. God is pleased when you put your complete and total 100% trust, not in yourself, but in this Savior, in the babe laying in the manger. And Romans 5.1 says, since we've been justified by faith, not works, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You might be here this morning and you might have come under conviction of the reality that you've sinned against God, you've sinned against man, and you're in need of a savior. And I'll just tell you, friends, that's the best thing that could have happened this morning. That is God's kindness to you. Many people live their whole life and they think, well, I'm a decent person and God will save decent people and I'm, I'm better than this person or that person and they die in their sin and they're shocked when they awake and they are separated from God. It happens every day. Every hour people die like that and they're shocked and they're in horror for all eternity. But those who come under conviction of the Holy Spirit and flee from their sin and take refuge in the Son, though they will die bodily, they will awake in the paradise of God. They will be confronted with their Savior and his warm embrace, and they will experience eternal life with him. We have to humbly receive this great gift. It's a gift of mercy. Can't earn it. But that's what makes it good news of great joy. God has done the unthinkable. He came near to us when we could not draw near to him. Let's pray. Father, let us never lose the wonder of your mercy. Keep us awake till you come of how gracious and kind and loving you are to us in Christ. You so loved the world that you gave your only son. I would not give my only son for the world. You so loved us that you gave your only boy, your son, Jesus, so that any sinner, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, any sinner who believes in your son, who entrusts himself to Christ, will not perish, but will have eternal life. You've reminded us this morning that you did not send your son into this world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We were condemned apart from him. You've promised us in your word that any sinner who turns to Jesus in faith and puts their trust in him alone will not be condemned. There is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. There's no way to repay this. We simply thank you and we offer you the praise that you deserve. Amen. Friends, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. So if you would, go ahead and grab the elements and take out the bread. If you didn't grab these on the way in, there's some right outside this curtain wall. 
We're doing this in response to what God has done. He put on flesh and blood and bone, and he lived a perfect life for you and I before he went to the cross where he died for our sin. Both were necessary, and his resurrection from the dead, his bodily resurrection from the dead, in his glorified state, is evidence that he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, but through him, all who put their faith in him come to the Father and have eternal life. As a reminder, friends, this meal is reserved for believers, and so if you're not a believer, I would ask that you refrain from partaking in this meal for today. Before we take the Lord's Supper together, I want to take a moment to draw near to God individually, quietly, in our hearts and in prayer. So please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity this morning to celebrate that the child has been born. We thank you for the significance of that. We thank you for the significance of that for us. Thank you for living for us, Jesus, and dying and rising from the dead. I pray, God, that for those who are in this room who you have stirred to conviction, I pray that you would bring them to faith in Christ, that they might understand what the joy of Christmas really is. It's a kind and loving and gracious Savior initiating reconciliation to God with sinners. We praise you for this great gift, and we acknowledge this morning that there is nothing that could appear under the Christmas tree tomorrow that is greater than the gift of your son. Amen.